It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the shock liberation of Kherson, and we ask the question, with winter fast approaching, what happens now? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilised energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 14th of November, day 264. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest from Ukraine. Hi, David, and hi, everybody. Very busy, busy weekend. A lot to get through. Apologies if it's a bit sort of scattergun. Obviously, Hezon is the focus. President Zelensky is there. I think he's still there now. He's certainly been there in, in the last couple of hours. Uh, he's uh, he's thanked the West, uh, the US, for HIMARS rockets, which he said were were pivotal in the in the fight for Hezon. Uh, he's warned residents not to not to rush back. He's warned them of mines that we think there's extensive mining throughout the city, if not the whole region. Um, he's, uh, President Zelensky also said that investigators have documented, already documented more than 400, what they're calling Russian war crimes. He said there are bodies of dead civilians and, and service personnel have been found already. That didn't stop crowds gathering all over the weekend. There were still crowds in, in Hezon's main square yesterday afternoon. That, that That's without going fire. There was artillery fire coming over their heads from um, Hezon, the rest of Hezon uh, region, coming th- over the city onto the south bank of the Dnipro, the east bank there where Russia has retreated to. But that didn't dim the the, um, the sort of the, the feel of the crowd. They were, they were delighted. They absolutely, you've seen images of them rushing up to the soldiers and saying, yeah, thank, are you, are, you're not going to leave us this time and, and, and uh, giving them um, flowers and fruit and presents. And, you know, you, you can imagine um, the, the atmosphere there in the city. There is still a curfew. The, uh, the governor of the Hezon region said that the, the curfew of, of uh, 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. will endure for a little while and there'll be a continued ban on people leaving or entering the city as a security measure. Um, but it does seem as if there are, if there are still pockets of Russian 
soldiers they're not they are not fighting it seems it seems as if they are they are either holding out or they're not there at all there's a lot of work going on to um to to swamp the area with security now russia says that they they got all his forces out without leaving any equipment or personnel behind that claim is heavily contested by images on social media and reporting so alexey arestovich who's one of the advisors to the the head of the office of president zelensky he, he said that um, they have found five sizable weapon depots, over 50 trucks, a helicopter. There's the image of the MI8 um, hip. Uh, you'll find it on social media. At least five air defense systems, 10 artillery systems and loads of small arms, mines, ammunition, grenade launchers and so on and so forth. So th- th- there is a, quite a lot of stuff been left. Now, quite why that was, we're not, we're not entirely sure. Um, there's some reports that the the road bridge over the Novokovka Dam was was uh, well. We know that part of it has, has fallen. The Antonovsky Bridge, th- there's reporting that it was destroyed. Well, mixed reporting is so it's destroyed. Uh, Mr. Rostovich is saying that it was destroyed during a high Mars attack on a convoy, and that convoy may have been in, uh, included uh, vehicles full of ammunition, which detonated, or the, the strike hit an explosive load set by the Russians to destroy the bridge. Later, we're not we're not sure quite what happened, but there are. Quite clearly, the spans of the Antonovsky Bridge have have fallen. Um, Mr. Rechevitz is saying that the bridge went down with with he's claiming ten to twelve thousand Russian troops still trapped on the right bank. So that's now in uh, Ukrainian liberated territory, um, and he's saying that that explains a lot of abandoned equipment as troops just dropped their stuff and rushed to the dam, the Novokovka Dam, which is a little bit further upstream, and uh, and went across there. So a little bit of confusion about what is left in the city, what effect it's, it's um, having. Um, but it is clear that if there's any resistance at all, it is, it is absolutely minimal. However, there's there, I think the Ukrainian counter IED, the improvised explosive devices teams, basically the bomb disposal teams, are going to be very, very busy making the place safe. And, uh, and the Ukrainian authorities are, are not discouraging people from going back, but just explaining that it is a, still a very, very dangerous situation. A lot of unexploded ordnance and, and expected a lot of areas that have been rigged with uh, with mines and what have you. So still quite chaotic, very fluid. Um, and I'll, uh, there's lots more to say. I'll take a little pause there. Thanks, Dom. Roland, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you have anything to add to what Dom has been saying on the liberation of her son? I think that more or less covers it. I think we're still in the early days in, in her son. It all happened so quickly. I mean, when, uh, you know, I remember having a conversation with uh, with the foreign editor um, just after the Russians announced they were going to do this. Um, was it was it just Wednesday last week? Um, and the expectation was, well, it might take a week, might take two, better be ready for it. And then bang, um, it's all over. So a lot of mopping up to do, a lot of... Uh, many unanswered questions. You know, there are all these thousands of Russian troops trapped um, on on the right bank. Uh, where are they? And and then and then what happens next? Um, so there's this. There's also this weird question about this place called the um, uh, the Kinburn Peninsula um, or, or, or Spit, um, which is on the other side of the river, um, at the very very mouth of the Dnieper. It flows into the Black Sea. Um, there's this long, beautiful um, kind of sandbank, basically. Um, which is technically part of Mikolaev region. And uh, Vitaly Kim, uh, the, the, the governor of Mikolaev, I think on Telegram last night, um, said, you know, 
Okay, Mikolaev is completely liberated now because um, we talk a lot about her son, but parts of Mikolaev Oblast are also occupied um, in that, that Russian bridgehead which collapsed, um, except for the Kimburn Peninsula. And then he puts out this, 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 this weird little telegram message consisting of, of two emojis. One was an alarm clock and the other one of, of two eyes looking to the right. Um, and then we had all this, all these weird kind of mentions on Ukrainian social media about a landing on this thing. Have they crossed the river? Haven't they crossed the river? We've been looking into this. I don't think there is any solid basis to believe the Ukrainians have actually crossed the river or put people onto that um, peninsula. They may have done, they may not have done. I'm, I'm deeply sceptical of um, kind of knowing winks put out on social media because... Um, you know, the Ukrainians are just so bloody good at, at misdirection um, and, and information war. But, um, but, but yeah, that, that's where we are. What happens next? Um, will the Ukrainians cross the river or not? Um, still a lot of fog of war out there. Yeah, if I could just ju- jump in here. I think that meme you're, you're talking about there, Roland, with the, the, the alarm clock and the, and the eyes, refers to the refers to high miles o'clock, which is a, a site you can follow, um, as in, what, what time is it, asks the Russians, it's high miles o'clock, et cetera, et cetera, um, which has been going around every time there's a big strike, then uh, you know all the, all the memes for high miles o'clock. So I think that was the reference there. It is very interesting, Kimburn Peninsula. I think we should we should all take a little bit of a pause um, before we get, our, get the, the risk boards out and start um, dressing up. I mean, it is, as, as Roland says, it, it's very narrow it's very vulnerable it's not great ground it's a very sort of a bit bit boggy bit sandy bit marshy bit, bit waterlogged very few routes i think there's only one route down to the end of the end of the peninsula so that the idea that this might be a, a shortcut for ukrainian forces to get over the dinner pro and then start pressuring russian forces from the west i think that's a little bit fanciful at the moment in terms of any heavy equipment i just i simply don't think you can get over there with the armor and any artillery systems high miles or anything else that you put there it's suddenly going to be extremely vulnerable um however what it could be used for it it might be um a a good staging post for any uh special forces units that might want to be going around there and flying drones because there are some hamlets there there are there are some uh, areas where you can there are buildings basically so you can you can hide out with a, a degree of protection um it could be used as an area you might be able to get some some sort of air defense possibly handheld anything heavier than that would be would be tricky to move over there but what it what it does represent is a is a risk for russia because they don't know what ukraine can or may be planning with that area as roland says Ukraine have been very, very good with their OPSEC, with their operational security. They really have clamped down. Journalists have find it, well, impossible to go to some of these areas without Ukrainian permission. And those that have uh, then get their accreditation annulled. So it's been very difficult to get um, ground truth out as it's happening. And yet, straight away after Hezon is retaken by Ukraine, we have images on social media of these, of these sort of uh, maritime assaults and, and all this suggestion, which, which you know, might might be sort of leading the crowd. I'm not, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. However, if if Ukraine are able to do anything there, it would just get a very very small number, a small band of determined men and women with with something, with some kind of drones, anything. Then it it just means that Russia have to keep an eye on it. They have to keep forces um, committed to it, either. Th- either surveillance forces and if you've got if you're surveilling anything and then you should back it up with a a punch as well so there may well be 
troops heavy metal there held at readiness to do something or to to re um, resist a, a threat from the peninsula uh, or they might try and keep some of their long-range indirect fire artillery missiles etc etc in the area in order to um, have a go at any Ukrainian forces that land on the peninsula. Now, that in itself not only ties up Ukraine, not only ties up Russian forces, but is a glorious target. Then, if you can, if you can spot them, if you have got some SF units with drones flying there, or even if you've got some assets from across the river, but if there are units of of, of Russian artillery having to be held close to the area in order to respond to any threat from there, then then they, they present a, a very nice target. And an example of that is what happened to the Chaplinka Air Base. So uh, about 50 k's southeast of Herzon, so across the river into the into the rest of um, Herzon Oblast. But Chaplinka Air Base, it was once, once Herzon City was taken and the Ukrainian forces able to push right up to the river, that air base, which we think uh, or images suggested was being used as a, a sort of heli heliborne or heli helicopter force uh, base, that came into range, uh, high Mars and other, and other systems. And there were reports on Saturday night of about 30 explosions, um, thought to only be ammunition that was left behind because Russia moved the, the helicopters out of there. So just, it goes, it goes right back to the heart of Of the military. So, what is a what is a military there to do? To, to my mind, it's, it's two things. A military is there to kill people and blow stuff up, and secondly, to threaten to kill people and blow stuff up. So, sometimes you don't even have to use your force. Sometimes it's wiser not to use force. I'm sure Sun Tzu would agree here. You know, don't don't use your force if you don't have to. If you just threaten these areas, if you put yourself in a position where the enemy can't help but to assess and interpret your moves as a threat to them, then then sometimes they have to they have to react. And moving those helicopters out of Chaplinka Air Base was a direct result of Ukraine moving into Hezon. I'm absolutely sure of it. That was before these explosions on Saturday night. Now, also, Myrny, 10 kilometers further south of Chaplinka. Um, that is the uh, only railroad that connects what's on the left bank of the Dnipro to Crimea. It is a supply point. We know this. Is, we've seen these images from, um, from Maxar and other satellite uh, companies. This has been assessed for a long, a, a long time ago. Um, so that is now in range. So what Russia's got to do something about this now that these, these areas are under the umbrella of, of possible attack by, by Ukraine. So what I'm suggesting is that Ukraine have been very, very good at doing what people are not expecting uh, over the last few months. So they've, they've gone in hard here and and i just wonder if, if they're now, now going to flick it and either attack somewhere else we can talk about the donbass in, in a moment that's been very very busy again over the weekend they're either going to attack somewhere else or do something completely different and instead of going noisy go quiet just have a few small teams flying things around to make sure make russia think that they're that they are a, a much bigger threat than they might possibly represent and force russia to move back because it's great if you if you if these guys push out of the way this This idea of moving out of Herzon and, and redeploying forces it made tactical sense. It was a it was a massive political humiliation. But the more Russia can be convinced to move themselves off the battlefield without actually having to put men and women in harm's way, then terrific. That, that, that works for me. I'm sure it'll work for Ukraine as well. 
So before we move on to talk about the Donbass, because you're right, we should definitely devote some time to it. I want to talk about Kherson and the battle for Kherson and its liberation a little bit more because the these events were taking place as we were live on Friday. So we saw the images of, you know, the first images of the crowds cheering the soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers, as they reached um, the centre of Kherson, literally as we were on air. So we were unable a little bit to <clears throat> analyse what was going on too much, I think, because it was just, it was happening live. So I've got I've got two questions for both of you. Um, one, one looks back and one looks forward. So looking back, um, Dom, I'd be interested in your perspective on this because you, you weren't on on Friday, but could you talk to us about the, the success of the, the battle for Herzl, which turned out just to be a, an, an advance into a city which had been vacated? I mean, the question is, how did the Ukrainians force Russia to abandon Hassan almost without a, without a fight? Well, in the last few days anyway. And then the other question, I mean, looking towards what's coming next, we know that the, the river... Uh, is 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 a potentially quite a large obstacle. Um, but what is to stop? Um, well, I guess one question is: Do you think how would they be able to cross the river, the Ukrainians? But also, do they need to if they're able to um, push push through far to the north, uh, um, above Zaporizhia? Would they be able to come around that way? Um, so those are two questions. Can we go? Just ask you both the first one. Looking back, talk us through the Battle of Kherson uh, from from your perspective. Well, I mean, very briefly, from my point of view, I think the Battle for Hezon happened inside people's minds. Um, it was the correct military decision for Russia. They've been tactically out on a limb for, for months now there. They've shown an inability because of their weakness and, and the stout Ukrainian defence. They've shown an inability to get around the corner, get through Mikolaev and get further down the coast towards Odessa. They've not been able to do anything there. So they were largely fixed and they became... Um, almost a self-licking lollipop. They were there defending themselves and, and that was pretty much all they could do. Now, um, you could say that that it was to Ukraine's advantage that they just sat there and kept taking taking fire because Putin didn't want to let it go. The, the only regional city to be taken, the first major city to be taken since February the 24th. So he was very reluctant to, to give it up. Um, the fact that it that it has been suggests that the military men have, have won out here and Putin has seen sense. So you could argue that's not necessarily a, a good thing for Ukraine. If if sensible military advice has been listened to, that might be not yeah, not great. So the, the, uh, Sergei Shorokin, the, the um, uh, uh, Russia's chief of defence staff, basically, if he has got the gravitas and is able to, to convince Putin... Um, you know, I'm, I'm suggesting that that might not be in Ukraine's long-term interest. However, back to your original question, it was lost in in the minds. They knew they knew they couldn't do anything. They knew they were just there and slowly being worn down. So they had to had to get out of it. Now, we were wondering for for days, um, certainly a, certainly a couple of weeks. This this claim by Russia that they were evacuating civilians from the area for their own good because there was a battle to come. We all went. No, no, it isn't, mate. It's it's because of some scheme that you've got. Now we thought, I thought that what Russia was trying to do was to evacuate the south bank, the east bank of of the Dnipro, and um, get the civilians to evacuate their houses, so that when they put a hard and it may this may still be the case, by the way, what when they put a try and put a hard defensive line in there, that those soldiers are able to be accommodated in houses that they've that they've kicked the civilians out of. Um, I mean, I can't imagine they would have been too shy in telling them to leave anyway, but it, but it helps to, 
to get them to go of their own of their own accord. Now, what it what it is suggesting it looks like is that actually that was that might partly be true, but it might be also might be more um, credible to see that this flow of people across from the from the west bank of the river as well, um, that Russian soldiers in civilian clothes were able to hide amongst that to, to get over. And that's why we think that so many of them got across, or, or conversely, why so few of them are left. And, and we, we, you know, we're not seeing images of Ukrainian forces winkling out these stay-behind cells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, the, the thing about that is that that you can't hide a tank. You know, you can't suggest a tank is a Volvo and, and and get it over there as some civilian vehicle. So they may have got their personnel across in great numbers. They won't have got much equipment, and we're seeing the evidence for that. As I said at the start, we've seen we've seen on social media these. Um, some of the a lot of the equipment that's been left so what i think they did was they lost they lost the battle weeks ago it took a while to convince putin um that this was the right thing to do they will spin it any way they like we saw that show with with shoigu apparently you know, defense secretary sergey shoigu um being in charge and saying right make a sensible military decision here whilst putin was touring a hospital having nothing to do absolutely nothing to do with the decision to uh, to retreat so he was very able as he's shown himself to be very adept at, very able to, to, to do the blame storming game very well. He gets the military to carry the can. Um, so if he's been convinced of the sound military advice here, we think that that's what that's what um, triggered this final move. What that means for the future? Well, again, we, we can speculate. But if there's if there's now sound military advice being listened to in the Kremlin, that doesn't massively augur well. But that's just a, a slight caveat. We need to need to sort of develop that thinking, I'd suggest. Thanks, Tom. Roland, um, what are you thinking? Kind of similar thoughts. So, so as it happened, you know, that night, it all happened very, very quickly. And then there was this huge kind of virtual storm on Telegram the night of the evacuation where you couldn't really tell what was going on. But, the, you know, there, were, there was definitely some panic um, amongst uh, Russian soldiers on the ground. There were definite reports of kind of a scramble to get out and so on and so forth. And, 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 and for a few moments, it looked like a bit of a disaster. But actually, I'm wondering, I'm interested in Dom's take on this. Um, the, the British Ministry of Defence uh, put out uh, an intelligence update a couple of days ago saying, basically what Dom was saying, saying look, it looks like um, they may actually have got a lot of people out amongst the kind of big civilian evacuation in the weeks leading up to this, which was why they were able to declare the operation over so quickly um, after announcing it. And and I wonder, actually, I'm, I'm kind of interested in Dom's professional military opinion about, you know, should we be giving the Russians a little bit of credit here? Because um, it seems to me that a lot of people were taken by surprise. I mean, we had, you know, everybody that I can think of from, you know, Western officials and commentators to Alexei Reznikov, the Ukrainian defense minister, well, all thinking, you know, this is going to, uh, it's a big job, it's a big job, it's going to take them weeks. Um, and it looks like, um, I, I think it's a bit early to say, and, and I kind of like to be there myself on the ground to ask some questions and, 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 and really get a sense of what actually happened. Um, it looks like, in a way, that if, if they'd managed to organise it earlier on, this went more or less, perhaps, you know, it was never going to be easy, it was never going to be a success, it was always going to be a bit of a mess, but but more or less as they planned. Um I mean, Dom, do you think that, that you know, a retreat like that was never going to look pretty, but um, maybe we should be realistic and not, not, not pretend that it's another slap in the face for Russian incompetence. Maybe this is actually Russian competence and actually it went quite well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think this is a, 
a well-executed plan if their plan was to get as much of their as many of their people out as possible if their plan was to get as much of their combat power out that's a different matter because we've seen a lot of equipment's been left behind now we don't know what heavy equipment they had um in the city and in the in the wider piece of the Hezon Oblast that they, they held up to the edge of Mikolaev. Um, we don't know what they had there, how many tanks and heavy equipment. How, did, did the ground lend itself to that kind of fighting? So they might not have had a lot of stuff there to get out anyway. So I would say, yes, this was this was a, a well-constructed plan and, it, and it, might, it might have been very, very good. Uh, and I think the point that, um, that I was making earlier on about, about if, if this is sound military advice being being listened to that i think is a, is a, is of more significance we've not really seen that seen that before and interesting you you raise the point about the the response inside russia and that that somewhat muted response the the lack of criticism is very telling and i think the the idea i mean it's a bit like churchill you know after after the retreat uh, from Dunkirk, you know, he's. I mean, everyone was going fantastic. This deliverance, we finally got, we got to hundreds of thousands of, of of people out. The British Expeditionary Forces saved, yada yada. Um, but you know, Ch- Churchill said, "Victories are not born of glorious retreats." I mean, you, you know, you got to you got to start going the other way at some point. However, if the if the if the alternative is absolutely losing everybody, then then a glorious, I'll take a glorious retreat. But I think it's very interesting that it's not not surprising that it's been spun as. A sensible. Um, I, I don't even think they've called it withdrawal. I think they've just called it repositioning of forces. Most people would look at it and go, "Okay, but you should, you should reposition them the other the other direction to win this thing." Um, but there has been very little response, uh, very little criticism, especially from the from the sort of blogger community, the um, the hard the the, the ultra nationalist uh, veteran community. There was a really interesting piece. I'd. I'd um, commend people to go and have a have a read alexandra banoff last thursday in the financial times he wrote about why he was talking about how ukraine could push russia out of the country without it necessarily leading to nuclear war there's this this idea that oh my god what's going to do putin sees himself as the state if the state is threatened that means he is threatened and therefore he'll he'll reach for nuclear weapons um as and when so alexander banoff said i'm just going to quote from the piece here from last Thursday, but do go and have a look. He said, from the start of the invasion, there has been speculation that military failure could lead to the downfall of Vladimir Putin. The lack of clearly defined objectives makes the definition of victory uncertain. But this ambiguity also makes the criteria for defeat unclear, let alone one so bad as to endanger Putin. The fact is that Putin's supporters do not perceive the invasion of Ukraine as an act of aggression. For them, it's a retaliation against the much more powerful West. He goes on. In the eyes of dissatisfied Russians, any form of resistance to the West is a victory, almost regardless of the end result. Even in retreat, they will console themselves with the thought of having prevented Russia's further enslavement. This is why there is no direct link between military setbacks and the weakening of Putin's power. It is as difficult for the president to lose this war as it is to win it. Domestically, even the invasion itself is a sort of victory. Okay, end of end of the quote there, but a, a much longer piece in last Thursday's FT. You can find it online. I, I do, I do commend that to you. And I think this is a really interesting idea. This idea, it might be really unpalatable, but you've got to start asking. Well, you don't have to do anything. I say, but you know, I start asking myself um, if this war ends with all currently held Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian territory currently held by Russian forces 
back in the hands of Ukraine, with Putin still in power in Moscow, is is that acceptable? As much as I'd love Putin to be gone, a glorious revolution, everyone to be friends, yada yada yada. Um, yeah, that that is almost certainly not going to happen. So would would I would I be would, and who who am I to be happy or not? You know, safe here in London, but you know, I I, I would reluctantly be happy with Putin still in power if Ukraine is able to take back all of the the currently held, the, the land currently held by Russia, and and the, the article there is is suggesting that actually there is a route to that. Alexander Baunov is saying that that it doesn't have to automatically lead to a massive escalation, nuclear war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Putin can spin this the way he, he he's built up this idea of fortress Russia that is him against. He's not fighting Ukraine; he's fighting NATO just through the through the lens of Ukraine. And, and there's almost an an admirable defeat to be had there. Or you know, you can spin it as as we're looking after, as they did here with the retreat from Herzon. We're looking after our people first and foremost. That's the most important thing: not to shed not to shed Russian blood un, uh, unnecessarily, and so on and so forth. So I thought that was a really interesting article. Go go and go and have a look, a look at that. And I think that might that might show some sort of way uh, a possible uh, future. I can't even remember if that sorry. answers your question, but I'm sorry. I think so. Can we just talk? Can we balance this against what this? We've talked a lot about Russia now. Can we t- balance this against what this means for the Ukrainians? I mean, this is a massive, massive morale boost ahead of the winter. Dom, you've talked a lot about uh, momentum and how important that is, and this, this surely keeps the momentum with with the Ukrainian army. Can we talk about what what, what this operation uh, means in the war? I'll have got that, but Roland, please, um, please jump in if you if you wish. Um, I mean, it is it's a major it's a major victory for for Ukraine in every sense of the word. I mean, it's it's totemic, it's um, symbolic for Russia. It is it, it uh, takes back a large piece of their ground, very important piece up to the river, so so more easily defended. There's a very obvious geographic line there to defend. And if you remember, it was only a couple of months ago, if that that there was a lot of chat going on about uh, oh, you know what, you know. You know, Ukraine need to come up with some sort of major victory before uh, before winter if they want to shore up this political, international, diplomatic support and see them through to spring. Well, since then, there have been two. There's been the major victory in the north, that huge rush, that headlong rush from Kharkiv to the east. And now here's on. So Ukraine have kind of done their bit to shore up the, the, the international military support. And so on the on you've got the success on the battlefield. You've got the now got a success on the diplomatic front as well. Ukraine can turn around to the world and say, you know what, guys, we, we can do this. We can win this. We keep asking for more weapons, keep asking for more money. Money is, is very important to keep, the, to keep it all going. That's, that's probably the only thing that Putin's got left, in the, which is why he's going for the infrastructure. But, you know, Ukraine turn around and say, look, we can, we can do this. Just believe in us like we believe in ourselves. So I think it's a very, very significant victory. I'm, I'm not so sure that they'll go totally quiet over winter. I think time is, would suit Putin here to get the those mobilised troops forward. I mean, it looks as if they're not getting any training whatsoever and, and no uh, no equipment to speak of. Um, but, I mean, if they're there in, in numbers, that, that's, all that, that's all that Russia can do. So time would suit Putin, which is why I think Ukraine would, would keep the pressure on, maybe not in big, big moves, although the ground will harden up over winter so you can move heavy heavy weaponry around the place you know it's still it's still a very very harsh environment for men and men and women and machines over the winter but some of these smaller bits and pieces just a few little raids here and there 
will will spread Russia thin. It will it will keep them awake, you know, the, the system as well as the individuals, and it will just exhaust them. I mean, they've been in the field now, Russia for over a year. Um, some of them, some of the equipment, a lot of the people have them because they're dead. You know, but a lot of the, the new people are not are not trained at all. So they are they are exhausted. If you look at General Mark Milley's comments that um, the U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff last week talking about casualty numbers, he, he thinks over a hundred thousand Russian dead and wounded. Now he said he got a lot of criticism for it. And he said he thought there's about the same on the Ukrainian side. We've no way of knowing, no way of verifying this. But I mean, you'd have to be utterly fanciful. To think that that this has been anything other than an extremely bloody encounter for Ukraine as well. So they they will be tired. They need to reconstitute, build up their forces again. And so it might be it might suit Ukraine to go uh, to, to shift the tempo, change the fight, do something unexpected, go on a different flank, do something other than the big heavy metal, do the small SF raids or or what have you. It might might, might suit them to shake it up a bit because they 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 are able to and they and they might they might need to. So. What, what this means for the for the fight going forward, I, I, I can't see them trying to push across the river, partly because the bridge isn't there anymore and the dam is uh, part of the dam has been dropped. So it would be an extremely difficult crossing, um, a contested river crossing, you know, horrific. So they, they might go around the edges, unlikely around the Kinburn Peninsula, as, as Roland's just been describing, but but don't utterly, don't completely discount it. There are different ways of employing military force. Round Zaporizhia, around the other end, further up the Dnipro River, possibly. That's a longer a longer route. And um, I mean, some people, Mike Martin, for example, King's College has suggested that if you're going to go around that way, it's better to try and motor straight south and go um, to Mariupol and then try and split off the Russian forces that are uh, in and around Crimea. So, I mean, it's a much longer way that sort of that the eastern eastern flank, if if you like. But I I, I think it's unlikely that Ukraine will just will, will carry on now, try and get across the river and, and continue some massive armoured push because I, I don't think that's what they've done going into Hezon, and I don't think they've got the capability now to do that anyway. Thanks, Tom. Just a couple of points maybe to add to that, which might be interesting. I mean, there's one thing we've been pointing out by a listener that it's around about now that lots of the Ukrainians um, troops trained in the UK and, and across Europe are starting to be fed back in, starting to sort of come back in into the ranks. So they'll, they'll be boosted by that. Um, also, I mean, I was, I was t- just on, on the winter war aspect of this. I was talking to a contact down in Dnipro who was saying his view was kind of lined up with yours, Tom. I think that, you know, actually um, it's unlikely to go completely, you know, to, 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 for things to stop entirely he was he was saying look remember the ukrainians have got lots of quite good western kit lots of winter kit the russians we don't think have much um and and he his point to me was well they're incredibly well motivated you know it might be very cold it might be very harsh but th- you know they'll, they'll keep on going the, the, the momentum's with them they've got several um victories under their under their belt and they want to see what's coming next um so i just i thought i'd throw those those two things in as well roland you've been listening to all this what would you like to come in on um i mean on the winter thing i'm I'm deeply sceptical of the idea of uh, the war must stop for winter. Um, yes, it is more difficult. Yes, it's just it's it's until you've been through a Russian or Ukrainian winter, um, you know, you, you don't really know what it's like, like living through kind of minus 15, minus 20 on the street. Um, and that's bad enough in a city. Um, I once spent a winter in a Ukrainian tr- a winter, a week around New Year in a Ukrainian trench um, on the old front line. And oh, my God, it was miserable. But um, look, Ukrainians and Russians both know how to fight in winter. I mean, it's not it's not like an alien landscape for them. Um, this war began in winter. It began in February. Uh, well, when the war began, um, the battles were with snow on the ground and people wearing winter kit. 
um, it was no deterrence. The last battle of the uh, the 2014 to 15 war, the Battle of the Baltzava, happened in January, February, um, in winter. You know, hard ground, freezing cold, um, rockets flying all over the place. It's not really, to be honest, an obstacle to fighting. Um, to be to be totally honest with you, um, so yes, it's. <laughs> Obviously, it, it, you have to. You need more more food, more energy, just just to keep a human warm. You need more kit. You need to stay warm. You need more fuel. You're going to burn more, but but it's not it's not going to stop people fighting, um, in and of itself. Especially once the ground begins to freeze. The difficult bit is is this horrible mud. But even the mud, right? They had terrible mud. The Russians were facing terrible mud down south in that first offensive in in February, January. Sorry, when did the war start? February. Uh, they still managed to surround. You know. Um, uh, Mariupol, um, they still managed to move. So, um, be a little bit sceptical of these predictions that the weather must must dictate everything. Um, on um, on on, you know, where do things? I think I think there's a, there's a couple of things um, on the river. First of all, um, so I think it's another rule of thumb. <laughs> yes, not not to rule out anybody, but particularly not to rule out the Ukrainians. Um, and it's worth looking at this from the other side. Um, so there's a, there's a Russian war reporter um, called Vladimir Tatarsky, um, you know, kind of has completely the opposite kind of sympathies that, that we do. He reports it from the Russian side, but he, he, he put out on, you know, had, had a video out the other day saying, look, everybody expects the Ukrainians to uh, to launch their next offensive around um, Zaporizhia, um, you know, on the on the left, on the eastern bank. That's the logical thing to do because this river is so wide and so on. Um, but he also said, well, that's the point, right? That's what we expect them to do. Don't rule them out. And he made the, the quite good point that, you know, um, this is not the Ukrainian army that Russia was fighting even in February. Um, you know, the, the amount of Western equipment that the Ukrainian army now has um, is, you know, is it, it, incomparable. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a that that that's a Russian voice who watches this war quite carefully, saying, "Don't be complacent about the Russians trying to come across that river." Um, I, I I I don't want to rule it out, um, but I am extremely sceptical. When you know we we had a, we had Operational Command South saying the deoccupation of Kinburn, um, well actions towards a deoccupation of Kinburn is taking place um, the other day, and then a video of motorboats with soldiers on put out by the defense the Ukrainian Defense Ministry with the caption "Beautiful Dnipro." I mean, to me. Um, that just screams kind of, hey, look down here, guys, while well, they're really doing somewhere, something somewhere else. Um, uh, so that's those are my thoughts on the kind of tactical um, battlefield level. But there's another thing that I think is quite odd, really. I mean, as, as Dom was just saying there, um, the... You know, but before before all this, you know, I remember back in the summer I was talking about they need a goose green, they need a, a, a decisive battle that shows they can win it and can can you know win the battle for public opinion in the West. And they've had two immense successes now, um, and yet I don't know. There is this weird sense that the, the, the conversation isn't shifting. We've still got you know these these remarks from from Mark Milley, um, the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the United States, saying. Um, well, you know, we should think about how bad World War One was, and 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 maybe the Lal War will, you know, create a time for them to 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 give diplomacy a chance once both sides, you know, accept they can't win on the battlefield. There's there's all these reports the Americans keep denying, 
Um, they deny that they're pressuring the Ukrainians, and yet it's persistent. Yet it's persistent. Yet, like you know, diplomats with knowledge, it's usually a th- so. The Wall Street Journal has two European diplomats who say they're aware that um, that, that Jake Sullivan um, told Zelensky to to think about realistic negotiating demands, by which he basically means um, think about rethinking your 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 idea that you're going to get Crimea back. Um, so. Quite, quite opaque. Um, I'm wondering what it takes to, to, to shift that dial. Um, maybe there are all these considerations. There are other considerations, of course, that kind of you know the the Americans and, and other countries have to have to take into account. Um, but but there are all these signs of, of of a shift, an attempt to engage in some kind of diplomacy. And the latest is, of course, Commerçant, um, generally quite a reliable Russian daily. Um, used to be much more reliable, but, but generally a reliable source, um, reported this morning that Sergei Narishkin, that's the head of the SVR, um, the Foreign Intelligence Service, Russia's MI6, um, has flown to Ankara in Turkey for a meeting with the Americans. Um, and the Kremlin is neither confirming nor denying this. So, so that says to me, um, somebody leaked this, somebody in Moscow leaked this to, uh, to Commissant because they want the world to know. Um, that this is happening. If, if, if it's genuine, then we presume that somebody like Bill Burns, um, the head of the CIA, would be heading the American delegation. Um, and that will, it might, you know, be viewed with a bit of anxiety in Kiev um, because there's all this, um, you know, the mantra is nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, and yet uh, here are the talks going on. So I think um, we've, we've got to balance the, the progress on the battlefield against um you know this diplomatic, this diplomatic push. The the men in smoke-filled rooms, um, you know, tr- trying to find a way out of this. Thanks very much for that, Roland, and thank you, Dom. Let's move away from Hassan. I think um, there's still, as Dom, as you said, there's still a lot of it's still there's still a lot of activity elsewhere in Ukraine. Um, what's happening in the Donbass? Yeah, there's still a lot of lot of tactical action going around in the Zaporizhia area and Donbass. Um, there's a there are there's been missile and artillery strikes around the rest of the country in the cities of Sumy in Kharkiv, Zaporizhia. President Zelensky says uh, he quote battles in Donetsk region are just as intense as they have been in recent days. Uh, we also think there are again this comes from Alexei Arestovich, the advisor to the head of President Zelensky's office. He's saying that Russia has tried to push through on that line from if you think um, Savatove, uh, so north of Luhansk, Savatove, uh, Kremina then down to uh, Marienka, which is 10 k's west of Donetsk, and um, Holivka, just to the northeast. So that, that line there, there's, a, there's a, a big push there from, from Russia, but, but not going anywhere in particular. Still ongoing fighting around Bakhmut uh, in the area, but so, so the line's not changing much there at all, but, but still a lot of uh, very heavy uh, fighting going on. And the only other thing i say about, just final point, about, about, the, about fighting in winter, you're, you're quite right, they were the, um, a lot of the troops that are being trained in the UK by the international forces are about to head out there. However, they are um, smaller in number, just just, just uh, single digit thousands, uh, we, we think. So less than 10,000 at the moment. That was the overall commitment. Um, and it's basic training, still good. And they've got good equipment um, and good grounding. And they, as you say, are highly, highly motivated. But I would suggest that in the extreme cold weather, what that gives you that is the difference as we mentioned I don't know, last week or whenever it was the difference between fighting to survive and surviving to fight i mean in extreme cold weather that that additional 
boost of, of motivation by fighting for your, for your country is you know, m- might just be able to get you up and get you get you functioning efficiently. Trying to knit that in together together into some major assault is a, v- a very very difficult thing indeed, and uh, um, and might be beyond uh, them just just for now. But I just leave it there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dom and Roland. Are there any other updates from either of you, or something you'd like to mention before we go to your final thoughts? Well, just one for me, if I may. Um, so today, James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, he has uh, he's signed the deal. This is the uh, the first tranche, first five million pounds um, of UK's offer of 10 million into the uh, Ukraine Energy Support Fund. So this was a fund that was announced at the Ukraine Recovery Conference back in July. Uh, Britain said it was going to supply t- uh, 10 million, 10 million quid um, to keeping uh, the sort of low level energy energy sector. So this is generators. This is keeping uh, uh, reconnecting households and key facilities to the supply uh, to the electrical power supply grid. Uh, the agreement, the, the agreement for this first tranche of five billion signed today with Ukrainian Energy Minister Herman Halyshenko. Um, and it's on the back of another seven million pounds that Britain's provided for over 850 sort of smaller generators. And um, and another five million for safety and security equipment for the civil nuclear sector. So, you know, little blobs of money, not not masses in the grand scheme of things, but good and timely. And uh, that was that was done today. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Roland, uh, would you like to go first with your final thought? My final thought. Um, I'm still reeling um, from from the speed the speed with which um, things have been resolved um, in Kherson, um, and I think probably. Uh, the world is, and I include the Russians and the Ukrainians in that. Um, so as we, as we gather our wits um, and, and try to work out, you know, what is next on the menu, um, I think we should have our eyes on um, both this strange meeting in Ankara, if it is happening, um, but also on, you know, the G20, um, which opens tomorrow in Bali. You know, Putin obviously isn't going, Lavrov has gone. Uh, Joe Biden will be sitting down with um, Xi Jinping. I think, in fact, I think it's today. Um, and everybody has a stake in this war. This is, this is the other thing we have to remember. Right? It's not. It's not just the Western Russia or Ukraine and Russia. Like everybody, you know, the global West, the Chinese, um, you know, the global South, who are you know fed up with um, you know massive food inflation. Everybody's fed up with energy inflation. Um, everybody has has some kind of interest in this it isn't necessarily the, the same interest as you know britain or the global west or ukraine has in it um but those those interests of other powers cannot be dismissed so what is discussed um and what comes out or what is discussed behind closed doors um especially in the g20 i think may have uh, great implications down the line for um well, not, not, not how the war goes so much as maybe how it might end. Um, so keep an eye on the diplomacy. Thank you very much, Roland. Tom Nichols. Yeah, I accept completely Roland's view earlier on that um, this social media that, that Ukraine are now putting out about uh, a lot of stuff on the Dnipro River it might just be to, to look over here, look over there. I mean, they, they, they have been very good, very good at... at um, showing with one hand and, and a kidney punch with the other. Um, I think I've learned from Muhammad Ali. But uh, I just I just to put you back to the last tranche of um, military hand uh, equipment gifted by the US, it included 40 riverine craft, which would be perfect 
for this kind of assault. For as much as Roland and I have spent time today saying, yeah, Kimbo and Peninsula, but actually we don't really think that's going to happen. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be the first time, wouldn't be the first time today that I've been badly wrong. So there we go. Um, I mean, Ukraine are, are, are masters at doing what you don't expect coming from a different flank in a different scale in a different type of warfare and i was just i've just had my eye on those riverine craft since since last uh, what it was two weeks ago and thinking oh, that's, that's going to be interesting so for as much as we've said that it might be a double bluff showing all these uh, all these images of of uh, waterborne assaults across to the kimbon it might be a double 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 bluff and it might actually be going for it so just, just keep your eyes open and um, and we'll try and make sensible try and offer sensible analysis where we can of what we see but um uh, but it is so fast moving at the moment on the military and the diplomatic front. I think I think the G20 is going to be illuminating. Um, let's really see where we are this time next week. Tom, very quickly, can you remind us, riverine craft, what are they? Uh, boats, basically, but not uh, big ocean-going craft. They are designed to work with basically within sight of the shore and in rivers. So they are um, generally much smaller, um, generally a bit, bit, bit heavier machine gun. Uh, machi- weapons for a craft of that size and they are designed for kind of raiding and coastal patrolling uh and sort of coast guarding policing but but very good to, to group together if you can come together very quickly because they got they are they are very very fast so they might be um not not a threat today and then suddenly overnight oh my god they've all come together and smashed up your submarine base and then disappeared into the night ukraine the latest is an original podcast by the telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 